Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, we're going to be talking about the economy. So a week or so ago, I wrote a newsletter for CJR about Davos and the coverage of Davos and, frankly, how much I hated it and what the coverage told us about bigger flaws in the way that business reporters are covering the economy. It's like there's a disconnect between what I read and what I experience and hear people talking about having to do with the state of business and the state of the economy. And I'm curious why what I see isn't better reflected. So I'm really happy to be joined in this conversation by Rana Faruhar. She's the associate editor and global business columnist for the Financial Times. Rana has been covering the economy in the U.S. and around the world for three decades. During that time, she's written a few books, one about the 2008 recession, which we'll talk about, one about big tech, and her most recent book, which came out last fall, talks about economic localization. Rana is very good at distilling big ideas into information that's directly related to real life. That's why we thought she'd be the perfect person to discuss how business journalists should be thinking more directly about their readers. Welcome, Rana. Rana, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. I thought a good place to start was would be to talk about Davos. Um, <laughs> you didn't go this year? I didn't. I decided that last May was my last Davos. And, and having done 20, 20 or so, I can't really remember if it's 20, 21 years. I feel I've done my time in the mines and I'm done now. <laughs> what is your problem with it? Uh, gosh, where to begin? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to quote Jill Abrams. Um, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on a podcast, but I guess you can edit me out that it's a corrupt circle jerk. But I do think that she captured something important about both the demographics, which despite, uh, efforts over the last few years are just unbelievably old white male. Um, but also, the psychology, which is, I mean, this is really, let's think about what Davos really is, not what it has managed through very clever branding to make itself seem like it is. What Davos is, is a giant business conference. It is a place to make money. That's what people have always gone there to do. And through some very clever marketing and positioning, the forum and and Klaus Schwab has been able to kind of position itself as some sort of pseudo philanthropic. I mean, you know, I know there is a Klaus Schwab foundation, but, you know, a, a sort of a global philanthropic effort that is also a kind of a mini UN. And frankly, it's BS. I mean, you know, you go there as I have over the last few years, um, not few years, a couple of decades. And you see it just getting more and more and more jammed with consultants and with brand people and PRs. And, you know, I think that there's a particularly, to my mind, toxic mix in a way between the business folks and the sort of government officials and, and you know, the media and the you know people like me, frankly, that have been going for 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 two decades, I think if we just acknowledged it as, look, this is a giant conference of very rich people who want to do commerce with each other, that would be one thing. But the fact that it has become something else makes it a little more um, icky to my mind. And I, you know, I, the reason I decided just from a personal standpoint that I was not going to go as of last May 
was the MBS Cafe. There's a promenade in Davos, um, as you know, where this little mountain town gets kind of taken over for the week and companies and heads of state and, and, and countries rent out you know, the shops and they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more for these spaces. And then they sort of market themselves. And um, MBS, you know, the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia had a cafe there where, you know, he's mixing cocktails for the rich and famous. And I just thought, this is Mr. Bonesaw, you know, like, why is this okay? Why are people going in to have a cocktail here? And why do we all think that's okay? And I just thought, I'm out of here. Did your decision not to go cause any ripples at the FT? Did Were there other people at the FT who rethought they're going or, or is everybody does their own thing? Um, people tend to do their own thing at the FT. And in fact, there's a lot of skeptics, you know, within the FT, um, and even our, you know, our, our editor, uh, Rula Khalif, I think has always been <clears throat> a little more skeptical than many people um, about WEF, but I would, I would let others speak for themselves. I know my colleague, Ed Luce, we, we had a, um, a Swamp Note exchange. We have this newsletter we write together called Swamp Notes. And uh, I think it was, I guess it was last May before I was about to go off to WEF, you know, I was asking him, look, do you think this is worth it? Is this a news event? Is there anything to see here? And he said, no. One of the reasons that he's never gone is that he sees it as a counter indicator, you know, um, which I, I would actually agree in many ways. I mean, when I was younger, it used to be a place that you could cultivate sources. Um, of course, you have to do that very carefully because, um, you know, the kinds of sources you cultivate there are, have to be looked at critically. But, um, yeah, I think it's almost a counterindicator at this point for what's going to happen in the real economy, because I believe that this class of sort of global um, elite, global technocrat, whatever you want to call it, is less and less in touch, actually, with what's happening on, you know, on Main Street um, in the real world. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that, because the only blowback I got out of what I wrote wasn't about what I said about the coverage. It was my reading of the state of the global economy. And it goes to your point about like whether people there really understand what's going on. Um, and I was, and, you know, let's, let's be done talking about Davos. <laughs> yeah. Let's not give them any more press. They, they don't yeah. need it. Uh, but I think it was, it's important. To, it's an important way to think about how does business journalism work? cover the world of business yeah. does it yeah. do it in a in a broad enough way or is it too narrow and I, you know i just think that there's a disconnect that isn't healthy for for business journalism and i wondered if what you i mean you wrote a book about the last recession that we had and i'm just sort of curious whether you see that same disconnect and what what you would prescribe that people do differently yeah that's a great question um I think you're referring to my first book, Makers and Takers, um, which was it was about financialization. And financialization is actually kind of an interesting window into this divide that you're talking about. Um, I wrote that book. I had been working as a European economic correspondent for Time and Newsweek before the financial crisis. And I came back to the U.S. in 2007, kind of right in time to land in the midst of everything. And at that point, I wasn't, you know, I, I had not been a beat reporter in American finance. So I was not really in the nuts and bolts of what was happening. But I also had the advantage of being, you know, pretty good at economics and business coverage. And so I could look from a 35,000 foot point of view and be like, 
wow, there are all these different things going on here. And I'm not quite sure we're actually getting the right narrative. And so that starting point was helpful for me. And I remember actually the thing that caused me to write the book was um, I was sitting at a, a meeting at the Council on Foreign Relations where there'd been an off record meeting with a former Clinton administration official, Obama administration official, who was talking about the crisis being over. And that was, if you remember, kind of a couple years after the subprime crisis, the administration, you know, they'd done some of the rule writing, Dodd-Frank was underway, and they were kind of trying to wrap a bow around things and say, there's nothing to see here. But I was digging into some statistics and um, I was looking, there was actually some great academic research from a University of Michigan scholar noting that over 90% of all the meetings on the most contentious parts of the Dodd-Frank regulation had been taken, not just with only the financial sector, but like three big banks. And so I raised that point and I said, well, how can you all say that we're done when A, the rules are only half written and B, most of the consult is with the biggest financial institutions? And this official looked at me and said, well, who else should we have been talking to? And what was surprising to me was not only the the true sort of incredulity, I don't think he was trying to be um, nefarious. I think he just really thought, hey, we're building a bridge. We're going to call a few engineers, you know, and we're not going to ask the people who were driving over the bridge or the people who were funding the bridge, you know, what they might think. And I looked around the room and it was a bunch of beat reporters and nobody really batted an eye. Nobody was scribbling. And I thought, oh my God, like, that capture both of the official by the industry, but by proxy, the journalists by the official by the industry was was quite profound. Yeah, and it, it, it's like the normal rules are suspended. I mean, you wouldn't do this in politics. If you were writing about somebody who was trying to pass a law that affected people, you would go talk to the people who were affected by the law. Um, right. Totally. Yeah. And you would you would sort of take the 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 legislator and the legislation as the beginning of the reporting process. And I think too often in business news, it, it's it that that step isn't taken. Whatever the companies say, um, or whatever the economist says, or whatever the spokesman says, is sort of the end of the road. And I just don't know, I don't know when that came to be or why that came to be. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I do, actually. I mean, I think that this is very much part of the cult of the economist, which I think is part of, it's sort of a post-Thatcher, Reagan, trickle-down revolution kind of a thinking, at which point the economics profession itself, as we know, became much more, not only mathematically driven, I mean, it's always been somewhat mathematically driven, but it became more about a very narrow, siloed view of shareholder value. You know, as long as stock prices are going up, as long as consumer prices are going down, everything's working. There is no problem. All this can be mathematically modeled. There was a, a not a sense that, hey, we live in a really messy world in which people exist and they're not always rational or they're not always rational in the way the models think they will be. Power exists and that can't be modeled at all. Um, journalists get very intimidated uh-huh. and and have frankly been pushed in that direction by the experts, and I put that in quotation marks, um, that like to use the language of expertise 
to obfuscate in many cases and to confuse issues. And, you know, if there's one thing that I think we should know as journalists or remember is that oftentimes if somebody can't say things simply, then they either don't know what they're talking about or they're trying to get something over on you. I had the same thought back in the last internet bubble when I was, I worked for a tech startup media company for 10 seconds. Oh my God. I did too. For 99, people were hiring journalists. That's what mine was. What was yours? I actually went, this was the topic of my second book. I went to Europe and worked for a Citigroup funded incubator called Ant Factory, which get this, I was hired as a venture partner to do B2C pan-European media deals. Okay. How about that for froth? Yeah. And and I remember there was this like, um, as all these evaluations were going insane, people were like, this doesn't really make sense. They're like, oh, you don't get it. You don't get it. And then we had this exact same thing happen with crypto again recently. Yeah. And it's the same thing that you just talked about as it relates to economists, this sense that like, well, this is just the world's change and you're just uh, you're not really seeing the underlying dynamics here. And it turned out all to be bullshit. Right. Mm hmm. The, the default on, on too much of the coverage has been to believe these people as opposed to the default, which is normal in journalism, which is that you you sort of assume that the officials are lying. Yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I have to say, I, I don't know. I, I am equally, at least in my own reporting, I, I am as liable to think an economist is um, lying is a funny word because I. I don't know sometimes whether my the folks that I speak to in economics and, and in business circles either believe their own spin so much that they are actually they're not lying, but they're simply, you know, they have a sort of a cognitive um, picture that is limited or or whether they are, in fact, lying. I don't know. But but it's I think it's pretty equal whether you could find that in political circles or economic circles. So one of the reasons this is so interesting to me is because my my read of the state of the economy where I live is bad. People I know, and look, we all have our own bubbles and we live in our own world. Um, Yeah. Where do you think we are in terms of recession, in terms of the state of this economy that we're living in right now? So let me answer that in two ways. First of all, I think that you're getting at something really important when you say where I live, things seem bad. But if you're on the piece, you know, in Davos, maybe they seem good. And essentially, if you're there, you're also in the 0.1%, more or less. Yeah. And, and by the way, let me just say that where I live is a pretty comfortable place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So if it right. feels bad here, it just something seems fundamentally off. So this is actually getting at a, a topic that I think is is of incredibly growing importance in economics, which is the rise of place-based economics. And this is something that I think a lot of journalists are not aware of. But when when you talk to an economist, when you see you know GDP um, numbers put out or BLS stats, they're being modeled in a way that does not take into account the fact that the fundamental laws of economic gravity may be different, whether you're sitting in Boise or in Austin or in Brooklyn or in Davos. 
And okay, that in and of itself is like, wow. Okay. And this is one of the, I think, I mean, this is actually a core point from my third book. I think one of the reasons that we are seeing a huge backlash to globalization is that economic models did not take into account that even though um, laissez-faire neoliberal free trade would create growth at a global level, it would dramatically hollow out certain regions within countries and communities, which is why in this country, you have the phenomenon of the Midwest swing states and some of the Southern swing states. I mean, this I grew up in, in a county in Indiana that went 75% Trump because the, the farms were consolidated and the factories jobs went to China. So, um, so place-based economics is important. So it, it really is different how economics works in Austin v. Indiana v. So that's point number one. And then point number two is there is an increasing divide between the part of the economy that is essentially based around asset inflation and the part that is based on income. So, you know, in, in America, the top 10% of the population owns about 85% of the asset base. And of course, it's much more concentrated at the top 1%. But what that means is it can even create almost microclimates. Like I think you're in Brooklyn, right? Yeah. Okay. So I'm in Brooklyn. Now I happen to be living in Park Slope. I'm going to guess that on my block, maybe 75% of the block is homeowners. They've seen the asset prices of their homes increase dramatically over the last 15 to 20 years. They probably have 401ks. Things seem pretty good here on 14th Street. If I went six blocks south into Kensington, it would be a fairly different picture, you know, because there would be different percentages of ownership, wealth being generated by asset in, asset inflation versus income. Yeah, That is what's happening writ large in the country. So if you get your money from a paycheck, you haven't really seen any pay inflation since about the early 1990s. Now, okay, why are all, this is actually a perfect example of like how we get economics reporting wrong. Why is everybody talking about wage inflation? Nobody's really feeling too much wage inflation. Well, that's because the things that represent the all the stuff that makes us middle class, education, healthcare, um, housing, all these things have been rising at multiple times wage inflation. So as the ILO recently did a study looking at if you if you track actual wages, they're negative in America right now. But if you look at the cost of living picture and you then balance out my, I'm just going to make these numbers up, but they're roughly accurate, my 6% wage hike over the last couple of years versus the, if I, if I took a mortgage out December on December and looked at the average carrying cost, it would be like 70% higher because housing prices haven't gone down, but interest rates have gone way up. The cost of living increases are so outpacing wage increases that you're actually taking a pay cut. Well, so that's an example of the Davos man experience being very, very different than the experience on the ground. So just to wrap up and get us back to what does this mean for journalists? I mean, um, unfortunately, you know, the solution is to have more and better local business coverage. But, you know, there's fewer local news outlets out there. Um, there's just fewer people to write these stories and to understand what's happening. So, how? I mean, you, you must think about this every day. I mean, you write for a global audience and you just made the case that like, you know, it's sort of like the, the economy is like the weather. 
it's like different. It's different everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. There are microclimates. And in fact, that's what I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm in addition to writing my column at the FT, I'm on contract at CNN and I'm really trying to push producers there to, to, to not call me up and say, inflation, Biden's fault or not, or GDP numbers, what do they mean about recession? No, let's pull the lens way back and let's look at what are the real structural, the big picture structural things happening. And then let's, I'm not saying don't do spot news, but let's layer it on top of those bigger picture trends. And just as a side note, I'm actually teaching an MA economics and business seminar um, at the university at Columbia, this um, in the J school this semester. And that's something I'm really encouraging students to do develop in addition to developing, you know, the basic skills of reading a balance sheet and understanding basic economic terms, develop a worldview, read, look at, read history, read, you know, and I can, you can go online and look at the syllabus, read what's happened over the last hundred years, the big picture trends, and then layer anything you're hearing on top of that and start to see where the gaps are, what doesn't make sense. And particularly as any anthropologist would say, look at where the silences are. What are people not telling you? What are they not talking about? Rana, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Rana for joining me. You can check out her FT column and newsletter in the show notes. So, one more note here, something we've been trying to do more often on this show is to give the mic over to voices from the CJR staff who report on a lot of the issues our guests are talking about. So this week after talking to Rana, I chatted with Mercy Arengo, one of our CJR fellows. Mercy recently spoke to economics reporters across the country asking them how they're covering the recession and how they think about all this stuff. Their responses were enlightening. Uh, Mercy, thanks for coming on. You're welcome. So you wrote this piece for CJR um, about the debate that business journalists are having around the question of whether we're in a recession, whether we're not in a recession. And I just talked to Rana about how to assess what we're in. And she was making this point that whether we're in a recession or whether the economy feels good or not, depends on where you live. It depends on whether you own your house. There's a million different factors. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you learn when you were talking to these folks about how business journalists assess the question? All of them were agreeing that this is a very complex time. Uh, and all of them were saying it's weird. Everything is all over the place and they cannot uh, say whether we are in a recession or not. And uh, there's so much pressure on them to say what's going on because the audience really is waiting to see. And that's something that they cannot say for now because most of them are saying it's not in their place as journalists to say whether we are in a recession or not. And yet they are facing these many questions from the audience and from their editors who are asking, is it time for us to say we are in a recession? And they're just like, we are, we are waiting on the Federal Reserve. We are waiting on the people who are the custodians of this data to tell us what's going on. And they it felt like they didn't want to step out of that finance language reporting, and they didn't want to look 
in any other direction other than the place where they are used to, you know, getting their information. And that kind of struck me as strange because we are in a very unique financial time with COVID, with what's going on in Ukraine, and there's just so much that's going on beyond what data can give us. And um, they weren't very open to exploring that, but I also understand where they're coming from because if they, perhaps they feared that if they dared to step out of that space, then people would think that they are unprofessional and they don't know what they're doing. I mean, it sort of strikes me that like, who cares? Right. I mean, who who cares about the language? I think the reason that this is important is because people want validation mm-hmm. of their experience of what the economy looks like. Right. If they think it doesn't feel right, then they want they want it to be validated by experts calling it a recession. If they think it's OK and they don't know what everybody's going on about, they're happy that people say it's not. So is that your impression as well? Yes, actually, you've you've summed up what most of them were saying. Like, the language really doesn't matter, but what people are asking, in short, is what is going on and, and what are we supposed to do as, as consumers, as, as people who are in this economy. They just are not really concerned about the language, whether it's a recession or not. They just want to know what is going on and what is expected of us. And um, uh, I, I think one of them must have said that they are learning to, to humanize these stories, whereas for most of them, they were so used to writing for a niche audience. You know, they were writing for people who understood how the stock market works. They were writing for people who actually understood the business. They're used to, to interviewing economists. They're used to interviewing people who know how the Federal Reserve works. And they're used to giving that to their audience who they assume understands that. They're not so used to talking to ordinary people like even myself, but then now it's the ordinary people who are asking what is going on. And um, some of them admitted that they are struggling with, you know, language. They're struggling with packaging in a way that is going to be relevant to the people who are asking these questions. Thanks again to Mercy and to Rana and to you for joining us. If you want to read more about my thoughts on Davos or Mercy's piece or Rana's pieces in EFT, check out the show notes. We'll be back soon.